You're listening to the Study Legal English podcast, helping lawyers and law students become fluent in legal English. For more information, visit studylegalenglish.com. Hello and welcome to episode 87 of the Study Legal English podcast. I'm your host Louise and today I'm very pleased to share with you an interview all about contract drafting. I absolutely love this interview and um, I'm super, super happy to be able to share it with you because the person I'm interviewing has got loads of experience teaching contract drafting and she really knows her stuff. So super happy to share it with you. I recorded this interview when I visited Paris for a legal linguistics conference at the New Sorbonne University. It was organised by Anton Osminskin and Charlotte Danino. And here I delivered a presentation about teaching legal English. Before we listen to the interview, I'd like to point out that it is also available to watch on YouTube. Just search for Study Legal English on YouTube to find my channel. And don't forget to subscribe when you're there to ensure that you get notified when new videos are released. I would also like to point out that a few people have got in touch with me saying they're not able to find my English teaching profile on italki. This is because I'm currently not taking on new students. So my profile at the moment on italki is not visible to non-existing students of mine. If you'd like to have classes with me, send me an email to louise at studylegalenglish.com and I'll notify you when I am taking on new students again. With that said, there are many teachers on italki and you can still take advantage of the offer to get $10 for free in italki credits when you visit go.italki.com forward slash studylegalenglish. And finally, I have a question for you. It is, do you draft contracts in English? If so, what do you find difficult about it? Send me in your answers to louise at studylegalenglish.com. So now let's listen to that interview. I am really pleased today to be joined by a special guest. She is a non-practicing British solicitor and has over 16 years of experience teaching law, legal English, English, and now um, lives and works in Paris and teaches at universities. She's previously taught at um, Manchester Metropolitan University. So, hi, Natasha Costello. Hi, Louise. Thanks for inviting me. Good. So, I'm super pleased to have Natasha on the show because um, we met a few years ago. Uh, we met through ULITA, the European Legal English Teachers Association, and um, we've collaborated together. We um, presented together at the last uh, ULITA conference on practical skills. Um, and um, Natasha is my go-to person to talk to about contract drafting, to get tips about contract drafting, because Natasha's got loads of experience about it. So I'm really grateful to get tips from you. And um, I thought, she's got so many tips. I want her to be able to share them with uh, people who listen to the show. So we I'll are... Try. Yeah. <laughs> um, so we're focusing on contract drafting today. Um, so I gave a bit of background, a bit of your background, but can you explain a little bit more about how you got to where you are today? Um, yeah, okay. So um, perhaps the starting point is that I began my career as a practicing solicitor uh, in England, in Manchester, 
And so I was drafting contracts uh, at that point. Um, I specialised in commercial real estate law. So I was drafting contracts for the sale and purchase of property, land, commercial leases, option agreements, lots of different types of contracts. Um, and then, as you said, I, w- I went to um, teach at Manchester Metropolitan University. So I was a senior lecturer on the legal practice course. Um, and in case, in case your listeners don't know, the legal, legal practice mm. course <laughs> is um, a course you have to do after your degree, but before you do your training to become a solicitor. Um, so it focuses on practical skills so as well as teaching law, I was teaching contract drafting and drafting leases. Um, and I was also running a programme on uh, commercial lease drafting in a local law firm as well. Um, and then, as you said, uh, I, I came to Paris. So that was about 10 years ago. Um, so whereas in England, I was teaching uh, native English speakers. Uh, now I'm working with non-native speaking Lawyers, lawyers and law students. Um, so I'm working with French practicing lawyers and uh, French university law students, teaching them legal English and teaching contract drafting. Mm, 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 mm. Very interesting and challenging and quite different uh, ways to work. Um, great. So moving into contract drafting and tips about contract drafting now, in your experience, what are some of the top Uh, errors or mistakes or problems with contract drafting and how can these these problems be uh, resolved or improved upon? Maybe I'll just focus on three Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. uh, common problems, if you like, that I see. So the first uh, problem is using archaic language Mm. um, and what we sometimes call legalese. Mm -hmm, mm Um, and I know a lot of your uh, previous uh, interviewees or your previous podcasts deal with this uh, this question mm. of of legalese. Yeah, so, I might just just interrupt you just in case the listeners don't know what legalese yeah. is. Um, it, we could say that it's language that doesn't have a specific technical legal meaning, but that's used kind of to give maybe a legal flavour to the. Um, the contract or to your legal writing, but that doesn't necessarily add anything. You can give plain English alternatives. So do you have, well, you're going to give some examples of legalese, I suppose. So I just wanted to kind of just clarify what it was. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but a good one is mm. something like whereas. Mm. Um, and that was funny because I had a, a student that said to me, but I like whereas. It makes me sound like an English lawyer. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, so I think people perhaps use these words because um, uh, they sound more loyally. Mm-hmm. Uh, and um, But whereas, for example, is a word that you can just cut out. You don't mm. need it um, at all. Mm. Um, and then some of the sort of more problem uh, words are things like herein, herein before, herein after. Um, and as I said, I know you've dealt with that on previous podcasts. Um Perhaps an example of where it caused an ambiguity mm-hmm. recently. Um, it doesn't sound too uh, archaic, but I had mm-hmm. the word, uh, or I saw the word, uh, above mentioned mm-hmm. in a contract. Mm-hmm. So um, this was a settlement agreement where party A was agreeing to pay party B various sums of money. 
And so, um, you know, in one clause it said they would pay this much, in another clause this much, for various different items. And um, then at one point in the contract, it referred to the above-mentioned sums. Mm. And so I had to stop and ask uh, the lawyers, well, which sums do you mean? Do you mean all of those sums that you've mentioned mm. before in the contract? Or do you just mean the the one you mentioned in the previous clause? Um, so the problem with those types of words like hearing before or hearing is what exactly do they mean? What exactly are you referring to? Mm, 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 mm. Yeah. So what? how could you resolve that? What would you recommend? Um, probably with something like that, you need to be specific about which sums you're referring to. So you can perhaps refer to the sums in clause four, for example. Then you'd have to be careful because if you change your clause numbering, mm. then you could have a problem too. So it's not always easy, but it's just something to be aware of. Mm-hmm. Just make sure if you've said uh, the sums in clause four, then you change clause four to clause five, that you've got some system to check yeah. that you've got those correct numbers. Exactly. Mm. Okay, a very good uh, first problem and first tip. Thank yeah. you. Uh, what's what's your second one? <laughs> okay, so still on the theme of uh, language. And again, um, most of these tips relate to things I see with non-native speakers. They mm-hmm. could apply to native English speakers uh, as well. Um I think is the problem of uh, lack of consistency. And what I mean by that is using different words or expressions um, for the same thing. Mm. So um, the, the, the obvious example I have is taking um, the example of an obligation in a contract. And what I often see is that different words are used to express an obligation. Mm. So, um, and I see that, you know, within one contract, there are different expressions used. So, for example, I saw one where it had party A commits to Hmm. doing this. And in the the next clause, party A is required to do this. Hmm. Party A agrees to do this. And then uh, this one I love. Then it said uh, party A especially agrees to do this. (laughs) So... I don't know whether that means um, especially agrees. It means more than just agrees. Mm. Um, But uh, the point is that if you start using different words to describe an obligation, then it's open to interpretation Mm. um, by the court. They might think, well, hang on a minute. Do do you mean something more by saying you commit to doing something rather than agreeing to doing something? Mm. Um, So that is something I see... uh, quite often Mm, that's probably I just suddenly thought that's a that's a really good point as well to mention for translators for court translators because we actually went to a a conference yesterday about um, legal language and the judicial system and there were it was attended by quite a lot of translators and there was a debate at some point about how you know um, should translators uh, not translators sorry interpreters um, who translate orally um, sim- normal, normally simultaneously or or as soon as someone's spoken. Um, and there was this debate as to whether they can change slightly the word or miss out particular words. And someone said that in some instances in legal language, 
it's really, it can change everything. So that's a good example. Although it's talking about contract drafting, if you have a clause that says um, party A agrees to, and then party A especially agrees to, a judge can interpret that as being something completely different. And um, perhaps in a, in a different scenario, um, you know, it could change could change the meaning in a, in an actual court case. Yeah, it could perhaps change the meaning. Yeah. Um, and uh, another point about, uh, again, just about being consistent mm. is um, there was a, a case a couple of years ago, uh, and this time it was where there was a definition. And um, as I'm sure your, your listeners will probably uh, know, that often in a contract you have defined terms. Mm-hmm. And when you have defined terms, you have capital letters um, to, for the defined term. Um, and then you use those capital letters throughout your contract. So there was a case a couple of years ago where there was a definition of practical completion, capital P, capital C. Um, but at one point in the contract, it referred to practical completion with a small p and a small c. Mm. Um, and so one party tried to argue this meant something different. So a different date of uh, practical completion. And, uh, and the court agreed that practical completion, small p, small c, was different to the defined term with a, a capital P, capital C. Mm. Um, and in fact, that was quite interesting because um, it was where the lawyers had taken a standard form contract, a standard form building contract in England, and had um, added to it and changed some of the wording. And I think that's the other thing often that I see with French lawyers is they're taking a contract they've perhaps found um, and then they are adding Uh, some bits to it and that's when inconsistencies can occur Mm. so make sure you're consistent you follow the defined terms you follow the the language of the original contract Mm. can be really hard because if you're working on a you're busy you're a busy lawyer exactly you know lots of people are working on the same document so it's quite a hard thing but a really important one as your the case that you mentioned demonstrated, yeah. um, and for listeners out there who are maybe a bit confused, if you if you're new to contract drafting and you don't know what a defined term is, it's um, where you have at the beginning of the contract, mo- normally at the beginning of the yeah. contract, particular terms which have a specific definition, and you want that. Uh, the same definition to be applied throughout the contract. You normally have a section called defined terms where you would say practical completion means the date on which blah, 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 and explains uh, when the building is completed mm. for legal purposes. Yeah. And um, even within def- defined terms, sometimes the language used is a little bit, um, you know, it's it's overcomplicated, but yeah. simply writing practical completion means um, and then the definition is fine. And then throughout the contract, that same term will be used with capital letters. Yeah. Um, or at least with capital letters at the beginning of each each word. Um, so good. A very, very good point. So make sure that you're consistent in the contract yeah. drafting. And I think you made a good point about lawyers being busy. And I think it, it is difficult. I've been a practicing lawyer 
And I know that often you don't get time. Ideally, what you should be doing is before you draft, you should be thinking about what you're drafting, thinking, why am I drafting this document? What's the purpose of this clause? Uh, is it an obligation? Okay, then I should make sure that I'm consistent with the language I use to show an obligation. But I think that's the problem. Often people are working under time pressures and mm. it's, uh, it's difficult. I appreciate that. Yeah, happens in every job yeah. and, um, you know, every jurisdiction. And yeah, very difficult. Um, okay, so good second point. Yeah. What's the third tip? Um, the third tip is, uh, again, something I think because I'm working with non-native English speakers, um, is just uh, in terms of sentence structure. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think there's a tendency to sometimes translate very literally from your first language into English. And sometimes this means that the sentence doesn't have the correct grammatical structure in English. Um, often it means that sentences are very long and it can just be difficult um, for me to understand or to follow the sentence really Mm -hmm. um and i think that's very similar to uh, any type of writing not just contract drafting so i think good writing techniques can help with that um and by that i just mean uh trying to use short sentences so within a clause uh you can tabulate have almost like separate bullet points Mm. you know you can have or have a list um so that can help uh and also keeping your main part of the sentence your your subject verb and object keeping that together and keeping it at the beginning of the sentence yes it's that's a really important point and something that um this kind of like the writing style of certain certain countries have a particular writing style and they might have a preference of longer sentences but certainly in England and in a lot of English speaking countries and especially in contracts good contract drafting is having short sentences and this is something that I spoke to with Stephen Horowitz a yeah. couple of uh, uh, podcast episodes uh, ago um, who mentioned that he, he teaches legal writing. He teaches legal writing at St. John's Law in New York and he has lots of foreign students and he, he says, you know, uh, when you're writing, he's not particularly talking about contract drafting. He was talking about legal uh, writing, legal essays at university. So if you're an LLM student or something like this, this would apply to you. Um, But to have short sentences that make it very clear, very, um, very, um, like, focused on allowing the reader to understand everything. But some students said, you know, if they wrote that kind of thing in their own country, their supervisor or the, you know, would be insulted by that writing. And so I think there's a kind of psychological shift yeah. that needs to happen. Yeah, maybe. Yeah. Like, you know, if you're writing a contract in English, it's good legal writing to write short sentences. Yeah. I think I think that, well, that was true. I think in France as well, mm. you know, the tendency is to write very long sentences with uh, lots of language but I I think there is a move now towards shorter sentences and documents that are easier for people to understand Mm. Um, 
And I have heard the comment that the client's paying me, you know, to be a lawyer and write long sentences. But I, I think I think that is changing now. I think actually clients want the job done quickly. They want to be able to understand the contracts. Mm. Um, and so hopefully that is changing. Yes. It's an important point for translators as well, because if you're translating a contract, don't you don't have to translate it literally. Like, just make sure that it's totally clear (laughs) which is not always easy um so good um very good point do you have any other um things to add to those points um no I think you just mentioned there about being uh clear and I think overall that is what I try to emphasize try to be clear and consistent Mm. I think those are my my main tips really good okay um and so Uh, Quite a widely debated topic in contract drafting is using shall or must to express obligations. What's your view on this? Big question. (laughs) Um, I think, first of all, it is important that uh, especially uh, non-native English speakers are aware of this debate, um, that there is a debate going on in the in the legal world, in the English-speaking world, about the use of shall and must. Mm. Um, Shall is traditionally used in uh, commercial contracts, in business contracts, uh, to show an obligation. Um, But uh, some people think we shouldn't be using the word shall. So, for example, uh, Brian Garner, in his book which I think is called Legal Writing in Plain English. Mm -hmm. I think we'll give the link Mm -hmm. afterwards. Mm -hmm. Um, So um, Brian Garner says, delete every shall. Uh, Why does he say that? Um, Well, because shall isn't plain English. So this is what it's all about. It's uh, the plain English movement and plain legal English. So um, an ordinary person doesn't use shall to express an obligation. Uh, I might say, uh, shall we go for lunch, mm. Louise? Um, so uh, that's the reason uh, why people think we shouldn't be using shall in legal documents. Um, the question is then, what what other word do we use to, to show an obligation? Um, and I think if you look at... Uh, modern consumer contracts they are moving away from use using the word shall if you look at modern legislation uh the word must is used mm-hmm. uh to show an obligation and uh and in fact we can give a link to the to the listeners but um in england uh, a few years ago the uh there was a project led by the british property federation and there's a set of commercial leases uh, where they use the word must to show an obligation. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, so I think my experience is that in commercial contracts, shall is still used mm. to show an obligation. Um, your question was, what's yeah, what's my view? Again, I think my view is to be clear and consistent. Um, so once you decide what word you're going to use for an obligation, Mm. be consistent with that. Don't use shall and then commits to and then is required to. Um, 
And the other problem is that shall is sometimes used in contracts where it's not an obligation. Mm. So this agreement shall uh, be governed by the law of England and Wales. That's not an obligation. That's just a statement of fact. So so that's why shall is criticised as well. Mm. For that uh, governing law clause mm. you mentioned, so it's a statement what would be a correct way of writing that? Just use the present tense. This agreement is governed by the law of England and Wales. Yes. You don't need shall mm. in there. Mm. A good um, point to note is that an obligation can only be carried out by a person yes. or a party. Yes. And this kind of links to the writing in the active voice. That yes. If you always think, who is doing that obligation? And so construct your sentences as... Company A shall pay X yeah. amount to Company B. Yeah. That's a really simple version of it, but try to keep in your mind when you're drafting those points. I think that's a really good tip, actually, mm. to always think of having party with shall mm. um, so that uh, it's clear it's not obligation on a party to the contract. Mm. Yeah. Good. Okay, so... Um, so your main point with shall and must is that shall is um, uh, it's mainly used in, co- in company uh, or business to business contracts. Yeah. Um, it uh, and must is more used in consumer contracts, but it's also used in legislation, and it's part of the plain language movement. Shall isn't used in plain language, yeah. but the main point is to be consistent and make sure you're using this language as to express an obligation and not something else. Um, Good. So um, one of my last points was what resources do you recommend? Um, Okay, I've mentioned a few already. First, in terms of plain legal English, which we've talked about, uh, I mentioned Brian Garner's book, which I've got here. I can show. Mm -hmm. Legal Writing in Plain English by Brian Garner. So um, if you want to see what he says about uh, plain legal English, um, then there's also a very good resource, the Adobe Legal Department mm-hmm. Style Guide. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's so quite a really, really good one. Mm-hmm. Uh, it shows uh, a company really embracing plain legal English. Um, it's a really good resource. Again, they say don't use shall, use use another uh, verb and they give examples uh, they give examples of legalese and how you can avoid that uh, and uh, examples of alternatives to shall mm. as well it's a really good resource mm. actually when I was starting doing some contract drafting I asked Natasha for some helpful resources and you recommended mm. that to me and it's a really good resource and uh, like you mentioned it's got the um, on some of the pages, it's got like the legalese version and then the plain English equivalents, which you can just, um, it's a really helpful resource yeah. if you're drafting contracts. And not just drafting, I think it covers sort of uh, good writing skills yeah. as well. Yeah. So, and it just shows you that there are companies out there who are following the, the plain English principles. It's not something to be scared of. Yes, you know? um, yeah. It's, so, it's a good resource for teachers as well. If you yes. are interested in kind of teaching the plain language uh, style, it's a good resource to show to students that it is used by companies. 
and it's Adobe. It's not like a um, a random yeah. small company. <laughs> They're a major multinational, multi probably million or billion pound company. I don't know, but um, you know, a big one. So it's a good example. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and then in terms of uh, contract drafting. Uh, a book that I like, I've got here, is uh, this one, Drafting Contracts by Tina Stark. Mm. Um, I really like Tina Stark's approach because she looks at the business deal. She, as I was mentioning before, she gets you to think about the purpose behind your drafting um, and then using the correct language to achieve that purpose. Um, so Tina Stark's an American writer um, but I think that um, the contract drafting principles she talks about uh, apply to any English language uh, contracts. Another uh, good resource is uh, this uh, book, A Manual of Style for Contract Drafting by Ken Adams. Some of your listeners will have heard other um, people mention Ken Adams. He also has a blog on contract drafting. Um, so I'd recommend you, you uh, look at his blog as well. Mm-hmm. That's quite a good book. Mm-hmm. There's another book also by uh, an American author, Cynthia Adams, with uh, Peter Kramer. This one's called Drafting Contracts in Legal English. Mm-hmm. And again, some good tips on uh, contract drafting. Um, in terms of uh, something from a British author... I think I would recommend um, this book, the, a law society publication called Clarity for Lawyers, um, which was recently updated. Um, it's not uh, purely about contract drafting. It's about good writing. Um, but uh, again, the, the principles and techniques apply to contract drafting mm, too. Mm. And um, actually, Natasha's written a an article... Um, which is um, for the Clarity Journal, um, and it was called uh, "Teaching Lawyers, Teaching Non-Native uh, English-Speaking Lawyers to Draft Contracts with Clarity." Um, it's a really, really helpful article, especially for teachers, um, because it gives some tips and it's really, really concise and it's yeah. quite a nice resource to use actually with with students and to um, to get get those tips. So sometimes uh, the the most difficult question to answer from students is when they say, have you got some examples of some well-drafted contracts? Mm. I'm often asked that question. Um, and the problem is that I usually take contracts that haven't been drafted well and and show how they can be improved. So it's difficult. It's difficult to find examples of well-drafted contracts um i i mentioned the model commercial leases earlier but perhaps if uh, your listeners have got any good examples yes yeah they if can you, share those yes yeah yeah if you do have good examples of contract drafting if you feel like you're a, an amazing contract drafter in english or even if you just would like to share um some of your writing um take out the confidential information and send them into louise at studylegalenglish.com. And as well, you know, you can get in touch directly with Natasha. She's on LinkedIn. Yeah. Um, 
and uh, you can find her by searching Natasha Costello. Um, I'll, I can leave a link in the show notes. So if you've got any further questions, would you be happy to answer those? Of course, yes. Yeah. Yeah. Good, excellent. So um, brilliant. So that was a really, really, you gave some really helpful tips there. So thank you, Natasha. Thank you. Thank you, thank you Louise. Um, and uh, for listeners, um, you know, I hope you found that helpful. I hope you found something new. And I've got a question for you. What do you find difficult about contract drafting? Get in touch. Send me an email to louise at studylegalenglish.com or you can join in the conversation on social media, on Facebook, Twitter. Um, just search for at Legal Englisher. Great. So that's the end of the interview. If you are a member of Study Legal English, don't forget that you can find your member benefits over on studylegalenglish.com forward slash episode 87. So thanks for listening and see you next time. Thanks for listening to the Study Legal English podcast. If you really want to get ahead, why not become a member and gain access to many learning resources? visit studylegalenglish.com forward slash pricing.